I let Hauser go this morning. Tomorrow morning, you take the case back. I woke up at two in the morning. Dylan wasn't in bed. Is there something you're trying to hide? I think I want a lawyer. Yeah, I would too. What the hell's the matter with you? Sit down. I need to tell you something. Did you toss her bike into the river, Deacon? Just leave me alone. No, that's impossible. Get in the fucking car! Just while asked for Mayor. Says she has information on Ann McMenamin. Get Mayor on the phone. Do it now. Well, hello, 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 and welcome to Killer Casting. I'm Lisa Zambetti. I'm a casting director in Los Angeles, probably best known for the long-running show CBS's Criminal Minds. And you know what? We actually did a Criminal Minds Beyond Borders, where we had to cast people with accents like Australian and British and French and Italian. And on Criminal Minds, every single episode took place in a different state in the U.S. So we were very mindful of the Southern dialects, Midwestern dialects, but I don't think I ever had to cast the Delco dialect that is so prominent in the wonderful HBO original series, Mayor of Easttown, because of course it takes place in Delaware County, Pennsylvania. So here we are, Dean and I are going to be breaking down the penultimate episode of Mayor of Easttown, number six. So Dean, say hi. Yes, hello, folks. Uh, Dean Lappin coming to you live from Tullamarine Airport in Melbourne. Let me tell you, I'm ex- so excited to be here. Just to be in an airport, as Lisa and I had sort of discussed a couple of about a month ago, when I went backwards, I'm flying to Sydney today to do a job. And when I was thought back, when was the last time that I was on a plane? It was actually when I met Lisa and her co-host of uh, her other podcast in Beverly Hills, of yes, course. Yes, That was in November of 2019. So oh it's been God. 15 months yep. since my skinny ass has been on mm. a plane. I don't – I'm so excited. I'm, I'm giddy like a yes. little boy. I'm I at can the, I'm see that. I'm at the that. airport. I'm flying. Woo! Okay. Well, we also have a very, very special guest who is here to help us understand so much more about Maravis Town. Please welcome. I'm Susan Hegarty. I'm Kate Winslet's longtime dialect coach, going on 25 years. And I did not coach all of the accents in Mayor of Easttown. I coached two of them, but I did serve as Kate's dialect coach as mayor. Amazing. Amazing. So yeah, I was, that's actually the first question I was going to ask you is if you had input on the whole production, or it sounds like, as you just said, just two. So it was Kate and... Uh, the other dialect coach, well, what happens as often does happen because Kate doesn't like to share me. And obviously on a role like this, which was so all-consuming and overwhelming, I needed to be able to completely focus on her. Also, since essentially we were making a seven plus hour movie, I mean, it was a huge undertaking. Mm-hmm. When you have all, when you have such a complicated community and so many subplots and relationships, you have actors who are coming in and out all the time and they have to be prepped Yes. And then you have to have somebody on set with them. And it's a huge job, just even if Kate wasn't in the movie, in, in the show, it would have been a, 
a huge job. So we were very fortunate in that there is a local coach, Suzanne Salby, who lives in the Philadelphia area, who happens to be a native. And she is also a very personable person who likes to talk to people and do interviews and such. So she, she wasn't hired until after Kate and I began the process, but she was able to help us quite a bit in terms of the research because she was on the ground there weeks before I was, of course. Mm-hmm. And so she served as a good source. I worked with Kate and then I also worked with James McArdle, who played Deacon Mark, who mm-hmm. is a Glaswegian. He has a very, very strong Glasgow accent. Oh, and wow. so I I did his work, which was non-regional. You know, he did a non-regional American, but everybody else was handled to one degree or another by the other coach, Suzanne. Got it. And of course, Kate is only one of a huge pool of actors that you have worked with over the years. And I'm not going to name list all of them, but I would imagine, Susan, you know, when I went to grad school as an actor and we had speech and diction classes, I had to learn the IPA, which is, as some people may or may not know, is the International Phonetic Alphabet. I had to learn all of the symbols for all the sounds because if you're using the C in cat, it can be K or it could be like S, like in certain, and you have to learn symbols. Or it can be as in precious. Exactly, exactly. And in school, when you learn the IPA, you can plug those symbols in to sort of easily know how a certain region, how they pronounce a word. For example, I say pen, but our good friend Brian, who's not here today, says pin. And if you go to a different part of the the US, it might be pan. And if you know the IPA, you can sort of more easily figure that out. But I don't imagine that you and Eric Bana and Kate Winslet sit down and learn the IPA, right? You must have a different method for teaching your clients. Just for the listeners, Lisa, as in, I have no idea, what is the IPA? Do you want me to explain that, Lisa? Yeah, please, please. Yeah, go ahead. The International Phonetic Alphabet was created in the late 19th century. By the way, I should, this is really important for me personally. My disclaimer, I am not a linguist. Mm-hmm. I'm not a scholar, I'm not a linguist, I'm a theater person. Mm-hmm. I'm trained as a classical stage actress. And I also trained simultaneously to be a speech teacher for actors. So I was actually teaching speech before I even started working in the theater professionally. And the International Phonetic Alphabet was created by a bunch of white guys in Europe, mostly French and English, towards the end of the 19th century, because English spelling is so crazy. And also spelling of any language, they wanted a way to be able to transcribe it phonetically. And what that means is that one letter represents one sound and one sound only, and every sound has only one letter. So just as Lisa very skillfully demonstrated (laughs) with the letter C, it can be pronounced at least three different ways. And you want to have one letter that represents K, and you want to have one letter that represents S, and you want to have one letter that represents SH, the SH sound. So you couldn't use a C phonetically. So it just, it's a more accurate way of, of transcribing. However, to answer the rest of your question, Lisa, if you're doing an accent, especially the subtleties of so many modern accents where they're really becoming a little bit more, not that the Delco accent is particularly subtle, but it is more subtle than it, than it was a generation ago. That's for sure, two, two generations ago. You don't really have the means. You can use the International Phonetic Alphabet, but it's not going to be accurate. Mm. So one of the things that Kate and I do, I've never taken the time to teach her more than one or two letters that are very useful because it's just it's a lot of time and there's a, a limited usefulness when you're doing dialect work. But one thing we talk about a lot and we specifically did when we were prepping this show is that I will tell her because she's English and I'm American 
she has different associations with spelling than I do. And so I will give her the sound and we'll discuss it and we'll practice it and we'll work on it. And I'll say, this is the way I would transcribe this word. And she'll say, ah, it doesn't look like that to me. And I say, well, what is what, what seems right to you? And she'll, she'll try something else. And I say, okay, great, go for that. So okay. in terms of how she marks up her own text, we're constantly kind of negotiating what's going to make sense to her to, to create the right visual triggers. Right, but the right. It just gets in her ear and she has a, a good ear and she has a photographic memory oh. and which I kind of do as well. So I, I relate to that quite a bit. So she has the visual down, but then it's in her head. She's not likely to forget it after that. So Right. So Dean, one letter in, if you will, in the IPA, International Phonetic Alphabet, that you might know is the schwa, which, oh, wow, this is reaching back into my brain cells, but I think it's an upside down E. Can I ask you where you went to school? Uh, I went to the, the National Theater Conservatory, which is part of the Denver Center for the Performing Arts. And my teacher, I want to shout him out, Gary Logan, who worked in Washington, D.C. for a long time with the theaters there and is now the, the head of speech and diction at uh, Carnegie Mellon. And uh, Gary was a wonderful. Oh, you're going to like this is a very inside joke. So only Susan will get this. So he studied with Edith Skinner. And as you did you. So you may get this joke that, so Dean, she's a very, just a notoriously famous diction teacher. She's just the godmother, notoriously very picky and precise. And he says that one day she just threw down her glasses and said, for the love of God, it's not castle, castle, or castle. It's pronounced castle. Now, only a nerd like me would get the joke but that story has now become true legend because <laughs> it originated at act and i've heard about eight different versions of it so yeah uh, yeah well, well gary i think studied at act so that's she never said anything sorry so this ipa language lisa that you're talking about with it upside down e is this the stuff that clueless people like me when you when you go to the dictionary yes or you look online and it's like you look at this it says oh here's the word and then there's all these random letters i go i don't even know what that is what the hell does that mean and it's, it's trying i get that it's trying to tell me how to pronounce it but i don't understand it it's is pretty close IPA? is it yeah i think right. that that's pretty okay. close Right. Well, again, I think that Lisa, it was very wise of you to bring up the schwa as the one, because it's the one letter that I actually learned when in grade school. I learned mm -hmm. what it's an upside down backward E. Edith told us that schwa is an old archaic German word. I've talked to Germans about it. And they've never heard of it before. <laughs> that it means a rag or a, a little tatter or a little remnant of something. And English is not unique, but unusual in the world's, world's languages in that it's a language of strong and weak stress. So that both English and German have this little uh, sound. It's just nothing. Yeah. So if you have uh, like in uh, America, America, that's the sound that's very, very hard for somebody from another language to learn. And that's why it can be super, super useful because it affects the rhythm. So if you say America, that's one rhythm. And if you say America, that's a natural rhythm of spoken English, no matter what country you, you speak English in. Exactly. Wow. Don't, aren't you, don't you feel your brain is bigger, Dean, after, after all of that? It's such uh, a pleasure uh, yeah. to talk to you, I'm Susan, because up. <laughs> so few people can I talk about this with Susan. So Susan, I can't remember a sh television or a streaming show that has gotten more attention because of the accents used than I, in a long time. I, I can't remember it, it really taking uh, center stage, at least media wise. Can you explain what the Delco 
I would call it dialect. I don't know. Do you discern between the accent and dialect the way that I do? Like accent is from a foreign country and dialect is from within the US? Can I just ask, again, stupid questions. I told you I'd be asking them all throughout the pod. What does Delco mean? I know uh, the show's set in Pennsylvania, but what's Delco? Well, I think that's an important question. I didn't know what the heck it meant when I started working on this and I got these things from Suzanne saying Delco and I was like, what, what's that? So I think if you don't mind me digressing for a moment, I'll mention a couple of things which are very easy to misunderstand about the, the series. The fictional East Town, Pennsylvania is set in Delaware County and locally in Delaware County, which is a number of suburban communities right outside Philadelphia, they commonly call Delaware County Delco. That's the local name for Delaware County. However, there is a real East Town, Pennsylvania, which has nothing to do with the series. And East Town, Pennsylvania, the real East Town, Pennsylvania is in Chester County, which is right next to or right near Delaware County. And our primary, I think he was our primary law enforcement advisor, there were a number of them, but the chief of police for the real East Town was Chief Dave, who was working at the East Town Police Station. I I spent a whole afternoon with Kate there, actually. She asked me to go with her when she was learning about the way they operated. But that had absolutely nothing to do with a fictional East Town, which is really based more on other poorer communities, such as, or a little bit more, uh, let's, let's say, working class communities, a little grittier, such as Aston and Drexel Hill, according to Brad Ingalls be the creator who grew up in in the region. So anyway, that's the first thing to clarify. But yes, Delco accent just means Delaware County. And again, Lisa, because of your training, you're asking all these great questions. I appreciate that. I'm not a linguist, so I am not precise in the way I use these the terminology. But generally speaking, yes, if I were to to distinguish, I would say that generally an accent is anything. Everybody has an accent. Sometimes people say, I don't have an accent or so-and-so doesn't have an accent. Well, that's not true. Every single person has an accent. It just depends on your audience, whether that accent is noticeable or whether you clock it in some way. So the way you speak is your accent. And an accent can be the way somebody speaks anywhere in the world or any type of cultural background, socioeconomic background, et cetera, et cetera. And a dialect, generally speaking, has more to do with within a country. But a true dialect, as I I understand linguistically is something like Catalan in Spain, you know, which is actually a sub language. It's not really an accent. Mm. But, but when we're working with actors, we tend to use dialects for any accent. Right. And we tend to call ourselves dialect coaches because there was an old term called a dialogue coach, which could be anything from an accent coach to an acting coach to somebody who just sat in your trailer and ran lines with you. It was very unspecific. So, so more in the last maybe 30 years or so, we've been calling ourselves dialect coaches. So let's let's talk about this Delco accent for a second. In my layman's observation, it seems to be very forward in the mouth, particularly on the O, the hoagies and the home. And there's a lot of breath in how forward it is. Am I crazy or am I? No, I think that I tend not always to use terms like forward, which mm. to me are of, a vo- of vocal terms. And I am, I mean, I can teach a voice class. I'm a singer, but I'm not really a voice teacher. I'm a speech teacher, an accent teacher, and a text, a person who does text analysis like Shakespeare and interpretation, that sure. sort of thing. So I tend not to use those words because they mean different things to different people. But I will say that the O sound, and I, and this is my other disclaimer as well. I have not done this accent for almost a year and a half. <laughs> Right. People love to make fun of dialect coaches. And so I'm just going to do my best approximation because when I'm working, I have extremely high standards and I 
have no way of checking myself, you know, when I'm doing this. But basically, the O sound is very, very distinctive. It occurs in a lot of different places in Pennsylvania, in my experience. It's not just a Philadelphia area sound, but it's the one that's often noticed first. So since this is an, a sound medium, I can't show you. But basically, if you're doing a very neutral O sound, which not that many people in the U.S. do anymore, but you still hear it sometimes in some parts of the country. So if I say Oh, I round my lips and then I round them even more. It's a diphthong, so it's two-part sound. And I say, oh, oh. But if I'm doing something like, oh, like Home Alone or Overdose, you know, Kate does that scene in the beginning of the, of the series when she says overdoses, then you start relaxed and then you round. Uh. There are lots of dialects that do that, including Kate's own native speech. Mm. The British O, you know, the southern half of England does that O, and I'm a native of California, and that's the way I grew up, is saying O. But the way I say O, and the way Kate says her British version is, those are different from each other, and they're also different from the Delco O, because that has to do them with the vocal resonance and the kind of energy behind it and all the rest of it, so then you have to just refine it that way. But it's true that this accent is not in the popular culture, and in fact, I've been told that many, I don't know about many, maybe there haven't been that many, but in the past, films that may have been set in the Philadelphia area or in Pennsylvania, they just didn't bother with the accent. Mm. And in fact, sometimes they would even say, we'll just do New York. Nobody will know the difference. <laughs> right, right. It's not in the, in the ear of the culture, you know, in the same way that the Northern Midwestern Great Lakes accents. Sure. You know, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, those weren't really in the popular culture's ear until Fargo. Until the, the film version of Fargo, even though those are very strong accents that a lot of people uh, speak with. Does Brad have a still retain a strong accent? The, the no, creator? He has almost no accent. He yeah. doesn't have the accent. And he doesn't particularly, even though he has a, a, a tremendous ear for the dialogue and the rhythms of these people. I mean, he's so brilliant. But he doesn't particularly, he's not particularly tuned into the sounds of the accent. But his wife is from Aston, I believe. And she definitely has it. And her whole family has it. And one of the first things I did was he sent me some candid recordings of his family going about their daily lives so that I could begin mm. to accustomed to it. It's so wonderful. It just brings such a wonderful layer to the show, just their sound. And of course, it's difficult because not everybody in a town sounds the same. We all know that. And especially ethnically, for example, the African-American actors and those roles in the show, they have their own rhythms and their own... But no, it's a different, it depends on where they grew up and what their background mm-hmm. is and all the rest of it. But the character of Bethy and, and her brother, Freddie, mm-hmm. They are both from the same town, obviously. They're from Easttown. Trammell, who is the African-American young officer, the one who has a, his queasy around mm-hmm. blood. Right. With Mayor. He is specifically from Chester. I, I think that may have been cut, but the references were to Chester in the beginning, which is another primarily African-American community in Delco. I did actually the prep work for, because Idris Elba is a client of mine as well, and I did his prep work for a Concrete Cowboy, which is, which is out now, which takes place in North Philadelphia in African-American communities. And so I, we had to do all of that breakdown and all the rest of it. With this, they really can go a lot of different directions because they did grow up in, in a community that was more predominantly white, most likely mostly Irish, Italian, Catholic, maybe some German in there. But I'm not sure actually what choices that Suzanne made when she was working with them. 
Right. I wonder how you handled this, Susan. So yesterday I was, I was, I teach a class in, in auditioning for cops, doctors, those kinds of roles. And there's an Australia, a young Australian actor, really talented guy who is auditioning with the role of an FBI agent. And he was really trying to take on an American accent. And of course it was part New York, part Southern, part this and that. And the, the performance became all about the accent. I couldn't see the acting, right? And I just said, babe, just forget it. Let's, let's just pretend that the FBI needed an, an Australian guy on their team. And then suddenly he just bloomed and he was wonderful. And I think that's a, such a struggle. And I just wonder, how do you deal with that? In your case, you can't just say, well, too bad. They can't get this accent. Let's just have whomever it is use their natural accent. How do you deal with that? Well, that's a complex question, but my main point is if that actor was having trouble with it, I'm sure he didn't have very good coaching and maybe he didn't have very much time to prepare Mm -hmm. because it's a technique. You have to learn it. You have to do it. If you're going to be a dancer, you got to do your, you got to go to class every day. You have to develop a dancer's body. And there's so much in the acting profession, particularly for television and film, which looks askance at technique. And I understand why to me as a stage actor, acting for the camera is essentially an, an improvisation. No matter whether you're letter perfect with your script or not, you are constantly having to be completely, absolutely in the moment, unrehearsed, alive to what is happening at that moment. And so when you have to layer in something which is so technically demanding, that's difficult, but you can't do it unless you do it. You can't halfway do it. You have to do it properly. One of the things I say to my clients and students all the time, and Kate and I, you know, after all of these years, we have a lot of shorthand with each other. And one is, which is fun to talk about just because I think it really typifies the way she approaches things and the way we approach things together. Years and years ago, we were working on something, prepping something. And I I said to her something I'd felt for a long time from the theater. I said, you know, sometimes I feel like the worst thing a director can say to an actor is, oh, it's fine. And I was going to go on to apply it to our situation. And she interrupted me because she didn't have to. I didn't have to say anything to her. She knew exactly what I was going to say. She said, oh, no, no, no. we don't do fine. So (laughs) Kate Winslet does not do fine. And I hope that I don't do fine either. The other thing I say to her all the time is why not make it better? And then the main point of all this is she will be getting something like saying she's, and this accent was really difficult. Mm -hmm. It's It was very difficult for me to get the hang of it. It's extremely inconsistent. And while some of the inconsistency is perfectly natural and we can live with that, we still had to know what the heck we were doing. And that took a while. And Kate has said publicly, and she doesn't mind me repeating this, that this is one of only two accents she's ever done that made her throw things. So I'm I'm glad I didn't know she was throwing things when we were, when we were working on it. But, um, but uh, the other thing I will say is that when we're starting to get something, She's getting the mechanics of it. So say we've just been working on it for a relatively short period and she's starting to do it right, but I know it's not integrated yet. Mm-hmm. And I'll say, okay, go back and read that again. But now this time, don't get caught doing it. Mm-hmm. Get caught doing an accent. Yep. Because as soon as you get caught doing the accent, then you're watching the acting, you're not watching the character. So it's the same as anything else that has to do with the acting process. You have to work as the character, not as the actor. And what's happening with the actor needs to be as hidden as possible in order for it to be effective. 
Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. Just- that was, uh, it's interesting that you said that you raised that question, Lisa, because last week or the week before I listened to an interview with one of your clients, in fact, Susan, Eric Banner, who oh. I know that you I worked very closely with Eric on a couple of projects, three projects. Yeah. Actually. Yeah. Munich and, and Hulk. But anyway, he was he was chatting yeah, with Mark Moron. We saw, but sorry, he was very good in that. <laughs> he was in what? Sorry, Lucky You, Curtis Hansen film. Yes, yeah. As he mentioned, he actually talks about that, and he said he said it was such a good film. He said three people in the world saw that film, and two of them were my parents. <laughs> but anyway, he was. They got to chatting about accents, and Mark, who do you know, Mark Moron? Do you know the podcast? Mark Marin. Mark Marin. Marin. Okay, Marin, right? Okay. Comedian turned actor now. And he was talking about the fact that he was trying to do this accent for a recent film. And he realized he was worried about the accent. And he went, you know what? If people see me struggling with the accent, they, all they're going to do is, is see me struggle with the accent to hell with it, right? But the interesting thing that I recall from that and being Australian and uh, Eric's Australian, we both live in Melbourne. At one point, And I'm going to play a clip in just a second from the podcast. And Mark says, oh, I know that you're going to nail this accent. And Eric's like, yeah, look, I'll get it. Mark said, you sound like you've got a little bit of a chip on your shoulder about having to do American accents all the time. Eric said, I don't know why. He said, but for example, in American movies, if you're a Brit acting in an American movie, you get a free pass. You can be British. He said, but if you're Australian... You can't be Australian. You've got to be whatever that character is. But he just sort of said, yeah, I don't know why it is. He said, it doesn't really bother me that much. But he said, yeah, I'm a little bit pissed off that every time I work, I've got to be American. I, I like in America. Why can't I be just an Australian guy who happens to be in the US? So we're going to have a, a little listen to that clip right now. But you, but you yeah. get, it seems to me that you're going to get, you're going to nail that accent no matter what. Well, we don't have a choice, right? Uh, name name the last Australian character you saw in international cinema. <laughs> it's fucking ridiculous, <laughs> right? It's like we're everywhere, but we just don't appear in cinema. Yeah. Get the Australian off the set. Have them play someone else. Yeah. But let's not hear that accent anywhere. <laughs> it's so weird. It's so weird. The British get away with it. British get to play British. Australians never get to play Australian. Well, are you? Never. It sounds like you're upset so, about it. Maybe you ought to find yourself in Australia. I, I, <laughs> what do you? I'm a bit pissed about it. Make no mistake. <laughs> I, I, I've, I've tried to raise this as much as possible because because it's like there there has to be Australians in in stories. Was well, the last Australian you played Chopper? Uh, no, well, the dry, obviously, but in funny, in funny people, I, I convinced Judd to allow me to be Australian. It's the only time I got to get away with it. And my argument, my argument was he will be funnier for being Australian. I will make him more interesting. I promise you, if you let me play him as Australian. Yeah, I remember. That was my pitch. Yeah. And, um, and it was, it was, it was, he was definitely better for being Australian. He was more of a maniac because he was Australian. I just have two quick questions before we turn to the actual episode because I'm dying just to get into that. I, if I had to guess what is the hardest accent to coach, Susan, I would I would say Welsh. I'm going to go Welsh. And I want to know what you what has been the most difficult. Well, that's a question I get a lot and I, I just refuse to answer it. <laughs> I don't think there really isn't an answer to it because it really mm. depends on what your ear is accustomed to. When I was saying mm. earlier that people 
weren't accustomed just in the general culture mm -hmm. to hearing the Delco accent, for instance. Mm -hmm. They're not accustomed, Americans are not accustomed to hearing Welsh. There are some that are certainly notoriously difficult to do, such as New Orleans or certain types of Boston accents. I mean, those can be very difficult, but it also depends on the actor. It really mm -hmm. depends on what the actor has a good ear, if yes. they're trained, how flexible they are. Sometimes it depends on how old they are. It's very hard to do accents the older you get. So I don't think that's quite answerable. But there are some that Americans are just used to knowing that they need to have some familiarity with. And then there are other ones that they have no frame of reference. So it's, they have to start from scratch with. Right, 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 right. Uh, uh, Susan, can I ask you, like uh, you, you being American, can you coach, do you coach in other languages? And if so, how do you coach, say, an American actor to speak Australian in an Australian accent or any actor to speak, say, speaking English, but with a Spanish accent. Can you do that? And what's the process? How do you absorb that in a way that you can then regurgitate it to teach somebody how that should happen? What's the mechanics of that? Well, again, that's kind of a long, I'm very happy to answer that question, but I just want to warn you, it's going to take me a minute to explain. <laughs> Basically, what I, what I do, people say, well, do you specialize in an accent? And of course, there are thousands and thousands of different accents all over the world. You'd never work if you specialized in anything. What I specialize in is the actor's relationship to the English language. Mm -hmm. so in that regard, I can do any accent in the world as long as I have some primary sources and a little bit of time to do the work on it. Now, if you're talking about an English-speaking actor who is going to do another English-based accent, in other words, if you've got an American actor who's doing Australian, then absolutely I am qualified to do that in terms of the basics. But if you're doing a film, you know, in the theater, yeah, I would just do it. But if you're doing a film, then I would say, look, I can do some prep with you on that, but you really need to get an Australian coach. Because if you're doing an Australian accent for an Australian audience, you have to have all of the subtleties because an accent is not just about sounds. You know, we talked about changing the O sound or getting to the O sound. It has to do with rhythm and it has to do with melody. It has to do with stress patterns. It has to do with the relationship between stress patterns and thought and intention of the actor, the character in the scene. It has to do with melody. It has to do with relationship between the characters, inflections, all that kind of stuff. All of that is part of the accent. I've been told that some dialect coaches don't deal with that. For me, it's at least 50% of the process. Mm. So what happens if you're dealing with a native speaker, you're gonna get more out of it. In the same way that I would recommend anybody who's doing an American accent, any kind of an American accent for an American audience, use an American coach because some of those subtleties are almost, they're on the subconscious level and it's difficult to get yeah. them. Yeah, no, that's, that makes perfect sense. So what you're saying is, to some extent, it's mechanical. You can listen to an accent and look at the mouth and listen to the way it's coming out and saying, I can get you this far, but then you've got to you go and somewhere else. And famously, I remember an interview, and I hate to throw this man under the bus because he's such a hero of mine, but Quentin Tarantino, who's a great director, gave himself a small role in Django Unchained, where he played an Australian bad guy who was transporting slaves and i recall an interview afterwards where he said oh yeah you know I, I did the aussie accent and everyone told me i totally nailed it and it was absolutely just cringe worthy it was terrible 
terrible. But of course, he's Quentin Tarantino. No one's, going to, no one's going to tell him that he didn't nail it. And I just wondered, maybe some accents are harder than others. But yeah, I would thank you for answering that. I was just curious about how how you coach someone in a language that's not your own and your own dialect. And that actually illustrates my point because it may have been that everybody was being completely sincere, but they were all Americans, so they just didn't hear yep. what you you mm-hmm. heard the thing. Right, yep. right. We are going to turn to the episode right now, but I just wanted to point out, I was just thinking about interviewing you and it occurred to me that I think the most fantastic accent that I've ever heard an actor use, it was Heath Ledger in Batman Begins because what he did with his mouth and and the rhythm and it was just, I couldn't even place really where he was from sounded a little bit the little Tom Waits a little this a little that but the way that he would just change it was just it's just part of his character it wasn't distracting it was just so integrated with that mad 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 character yeah just about Heath Ledger of course uh, Lisa back I don't know 10 eps ago Brian made particular mention of Heath Ledger auditioning for Brokeback Broke Mountain Back and how tight and, his jaw yeah, yeah and, and and everybody came in trying to do this kind of cowboy accent and he came in with his clenched, just speaking through a clenched jaw. And it was just so restricted and so restrained and so clearly under pressure. And that was just his decision to play it that way. And it worked out so well. So oh. interesting. Mm. Oh, love him so much. All right, guys, here we go. Penultimate episode of Mare. We start the episode as we have several times with Mare waking up, right? She wakes up. And this time the world is a very different place. Katie's been found and reunited with her family. Colin is dead. There's extreme joy in the world now and extreme pain. But I just love that connection that so many times the show has started with her waking up. Uh, And you probably noticed this, Lisa, but right in those scenes in the hospital, the thing that struck me when I watched it was the DOP decision or the director decision, they just did a series of depth of field changes where she was in focus and then they just pull focus and then you can see the people behind her and then they pulled focus again to a different perspective and then they cut to a different shot and they did the same thing. And it was just so subtle but just Mm. so gentle, of course. When you pull focus, it's not a cut, but it was just so effective. It stopped me and I went, wow, had to stop and make a note of that. It was so cool. Susan, what did you think about the beginnings of this episode where you see Mare being taken care of by her mom? And I don't know, there's so, it's just, it just starts off feeling a very, it's a very different Mare who wakes up. You know? Yes, especially the, the way it was cut for me, because of course I, I've not seen the final version of any of this until, until you all are seeing it. So the thing that struck me most is just that you see them as a family and in the sense as a functioning family and mm-hmm. she, Smart, who is just, I just love every moment that she's, that she's on screen and she comes over with so much love and concern and care. And then you see, you know, everybody and the ex-husband with the grandson and, and everyone is just really that she has her team. And I think it's a time that we absolutely see her team showing up for her. And that is, it's a very heartwarming thing, which they don't milk it. You know, they don't know how to do it. But, but that's the thing visually that's so obvious to me is there they are all lined up and that's what she sees when she wakes up. Yeah, I agree with you. They don't stay too long on these. They don't over make things over precious. When they do, it's really earned. Like that moment was coming as, as oh, we'll talk about that in a second. So we see 
this is a tricky episode for me. And because I, Susan, because I worked in procedurals for many, many, many years, I've seen every iteration of every kind of detective case. And so, uh, you know, I'm always trying to see, okay, who's the red herring? Who's not? I never thought it was the deacon. I thought it was just, it was just too obvious that the deacon had something to do with Aaron's death. So even though they're putting the squeeze on him, and I don't think it's, I don't think the deacon had anything to do with it. He may have done something else, but I don't know. And then we go to Mary's with Lori at home and she's talking about John is sleeping around again. And I start to think, you know what? I'm starting to just doubt every single person who I thought had done it. It's just so funny. It's like I'm, I'm being torn in a lot of different way- places. Don't you think, Dean? Oh, yeah. No, every time you think, oh, okay, yeah. And this is, I've mentioned before, I I think the brilliance of the script in this is that they give you some obvious, and we've discussed this in the previous episodes on this show, but every time you think, oh, yeah, well, obviously there's the deacon throwing the bike off the bridge in the river. So it's clearly not him because that's a red herring, right? And then, so the script keeps flipping and flipping and flipping and, and you're never quite sure the ground keeps moving under your feet, which is what I love about it. Yeah, yeah. Sorry if it's any comfort to you when we were shooting, because initially I was issued the first, I think the first two scripts, and then it wasn't long after that I was issued most of them, I think up to episode five. But Kate was tormenting me constantly by saying, who do you think it is? Who do you think it is? Who do you think it is? (laughs) Well, I think I think I have figured it out. And I'll tell you at the end. But Susan, what did you think of this scene where Mare, you know, she sees the news coverage of Zabel's death and honoring him and she cannot help herself. She has the urge to go to his mother's house and is on her porch. And the wonderful actress Deb Headwell opens that door and they have this scene I thought it was just an extraordinary performance by Deb Headwell. And I have cast literally hundreds of grieving mothers, but her rage and her dignity just thought the moment between them was incredible. Do you have any insights about Uh, it? No, I don't have any comments about it, except that I agree with you in that I remember when we were shooting, I mean, we did all of Deb's scenes in one night shoot, very late night. And I remember thinking that she was a heavyweight really good and it was a really shocking and powerful moment between them I thought and that thing of like well what does Mayor do now I mean she did it mm. can't take it back yeah. he's that's right He's dead. And, and of course, the irony was, if, if you think back to the previous episode, the last words that she said to him, Lisa, do you remember what, as he was leaving to get in the car with Mare? Oh, uh, no. His mother's last words to him were, just be careful. Oh. And he said, I've been careful my whole life, mum. Look where it got me. And that was the last and last thing she said. And that, and that was it. So then when Mayor turns up, I went, this is not going to go well. And of course, you know, she gets slapped, I think not once, but twice, doesn't she? Yeah. It's once. And then it's yeah, three times. Yeah, multiple. She's got a lot of anger in her. And the thing that struck me, okay, so there was that scene. And then immediately Mayor goes home. And for the first time, not the first time ever in the series, but she goes home and she cries and sobs with her mother, which it's another step in Mare being sort of humanised, right? Because up until then, Lisa, the tenderest moment, I think, in the whole series was when her and Laurie were on the park bench talking and she laid her head on Laurie's shoulder. Yeah. And that was that was as tender as you saw Mare in the entire series. And now she's gone back to her mum and she's just, she's just totally surrendered. And I thought that was a really uh, important point. Yeah, those two back-to-back scenes really stood out to me. And the way that Kate 
cried. I mean, different cries mean different things. I, you know that if you're a mom, when your baby cries for hunger and other things, the way that her it came out of her, the sound that came out of her was so primal. Uh, it was just this release that it just got to me. And the work of the actresses in this show is so fucking amazing. It's these mothers. You have uh, Deb Hedrell as Zabel's mom, and then you have Jean Smart. And then, of course, Mare is a mom. And these mothers who are in such agony. It's just, I can't get enough. I don't know. Susan, anything before we move on? <laughs> no, just to say that I've been watching Kate work for many, 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 many years. Yes. And- uh, in very close quarters, and we determined some years ago I've spent more time alone with her than anyone that she's not married to or related to, <laughs> just because of, you know, when you're working 16 hours a day, et cetera, et cetera. But she dug deep for this show. Yeah, she, I can. Day, I, after day after day. Absolutely, absolutely. The one, and you, you don't have to respond to this at all, because it's a tiny bit of a criticism, but they introduce Gordon Clapp comes in as the patriarch or the father of John and Bill. And I'm like, wh- I was very confused as to why he's only showing up now. He's such a great character actor. And just something about it pinged me like, mm, this feels weird. And just his relationship and the energy between him and his creepy, we call him creepy cousin, Bill, and then his son, John, there's just something that's not adding up. And so it's tipping me. I'll say it here. This is what I think happened. I think that Gordon Clapp, I think his name is Pat Ross. I think he did it and his sons are trying to cover it up for him. So that's what I think at this moment. And I'm probably totally wrong. But anyway, so we have the scene with Kate and Guy Pierce, how she's sort of breaking up with him and she just can't handle it. We have the scene where Rihanna is dropping the dime on Dylan. And, and any thoughts in here, Dean, about these scenes? Yeah, I, when, okay, so she goes to visit Zabel's mom. She gets slapped. She comes home. She breaks down with her mom. And then ding dong, and here comes Richard. And I went, oh, my. And then she confesses to him mm-hmm. about how, okay, you know, the other night when I ditched on you, it wasn't because I was busy or whatever. I was, I had a date with Colin and so on and so on. And I just keep coming back. I just couldn't help myself but trying, as I was watching this particular ep, trying to work out what was the significance of the title of this episode. So what is the greatest, which is the greatest betrayal? You can look this up on our Facebook and our Twitters, people, as to what this, this thing's called. And I'm looking for what the betrayal is. And so I'm wondering if this was it. Is it, okay, at a most vulnerable, here he comes. He wasn't in the last episode. And she's opening up and she's becoming human and she's sort of being a normal person. Is this it? And at one point I went, no, it's definitely him. It's definitely Richard. You okay, think it's Richard? It's... You think it's Richard? <laughs> no, oh, okay. I did it. In that scene, I was like, oh, that's yeah. it. Yeah, it's, it's got to be him, right? Well, the title of the episode is Sore Must Be the Storm, isn't it? Right. Sore yes. Must which Be the is Storm. A, w- Susan, which would you is know what that's po- from po- at all? No, actually, I was just noticing because I pulled out my my script um, just in case mm. I had to refer to it. And so I was I was looking at that again as, as well as having just watched it. And I don't remember, I've registered most of the titles in the past, but I don't remember really thinking about that when we were shooting. So, so it's a poetic term, which means bringing the most hurt and most pain to a character in that poetic story. Mm. 
And then when I mean, you think about it, you go, well, she's been through so much. What else could there be? But that's what it means. So if you just Google the title, it'll tell you that. But then you, what that means, I don't know. We get another mother in this episode who is just struggling. And that's the great Sosie Bacon as Carrie trying her best to stay clean, work a million jobs and have her son for the evening. That kid, Susan, I got to tell you, I don't know where they found that kid. But he is, and I've cast a lot of kids too. The way that he's able to play like a real boy. I have two twin boys. I'm like, this is how kids really play. They don't play in a fake way. The scenes with her in the bathtub, I was so scared because that is one of the the most prevalent ways that children under five die is in the bathtub. So those uh, those were just heart-stopping scenes. And I wonder if something is going to come of that where... Carrie is going to be like, I, I don't think I can handle being his mom. But Dean, there goes, uh, Mayor is like, you know what? Give her a chance, right? She is so different in this episode. Mayor is suddenly like, a mom does, she deserves to try to be a mom. It's like all the maternal yeah. people in this episode are just, their hearts are just right on the surface. Yeah. Earlier on, we were talking about the theme of fathers. And sort of there's the fatherly links down the chain from Mayor's father to Dylan being a bad father, you know, Mm -hmm. to DJ and and all these fatherly links. But as the story's developed, it's really more, I think, about the mothers. Mm. And it's just endlessly fascinating to see how this stuff plays out. And I I can't wait to find out. Yeah. Just going to speed through the end. So Mayor figures out that there is something rotten in the state of... Ross and this camp they went to and all so all this stuff is pointing in the direction of the creepy cousin Bill and he seems to confess to his brother but I went and I watched back the scene over and over again and if you really look at the dialogue and we're coming into the middle of their conversation and his brother John is going I have to hear you say it say the words I feel like there's something different going on that Bill is not really confessing that he really didn't kill her, but for some reason he's going to confess in order to protect somebody else. It's just my criminal minds hat coming on, but we still think that Dylan may have done it because his alibi has been shot to crap. There's something going on with Jess as showing the chief of police, some picture from the notebook that she thinks is going to be the smoking gun for who really did it. I mean, it's just really thrilling, but it's like going in just a lot of different directions. What did you think about the end there, Dean? Exactly. And as Brian said last week, it's like a shell game. Where's the pea? Where's the pea? It's so that they keep moving the the little paper cups around and and which one is it under? Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's very clever because if anyone said to me, I categorically know who it is, I would say, well, you've got to be a genius because it's been intentionally written to be very obtuse. But I just also wanted to make mention of the scene where Mayor goes back to the, it's about the 20 minute mark. She goes back to the therapist. Oh, yes. The therapist oh, says, I forgot to mention no, that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, why are you here? You know, you're no longer required to be here. And she said, I can feel it happening again. And the therapist says, what do you mean? Uh, Wonderfully staged and shot, by the way. And she said, I just feel like I'm not good enough. And it just broke my heart. As we've said, she's carrying such a load throughout this entire series. As a human being, as a mother, lost her father, about to lose DJ, lost her son, couldn't find the, the missing girls. and But at least she's 
proactively, and and this goes to your earlier point too about her breaking down with her mum and having a sob. She's realizing that she just can't keep going the way that she's going mm-hmm. because it's not sustainable. Susan, mm. what did you think of the scene with the therapist and then they cut to the flashback? It's a really interesting cut that they do of the flashback of her going and finding her son who had ended his life. Any thoughts about that? I just thought the performance was incredible in the flashback, but the way that they did it was very interesting. They still have her VO over it and it's kind of a slow motion flashback. Any thoughts about that? It's horrendous and it's very beautiful. I mean, what what was originally shot was more involved than that. It was more elaborate. Mm -hmm. And I thought they did a great job of cutting it down. But, you know, I wasn't on set for the entire shoot, Mm -hmm. but most of what we've talked about, I was on set for. And I remember that night was just very painful even to listen to. I refused to watch the monitor, but I did listen to it because that's my job. But uh, originally there were lines and such that were involved in that. But I thought they did a really beautiful job of weaving that into the therapy Mm. session. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, During that, when they flash back to her finding him in the attic and she's just devastated. And so were you as a viewer. And I'm glad that... Siobhan on the floor sobbing and as she runs past Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm glad they didn't show more. You don't need to see more of that scene. Well, that's about it. The only other thing I would say is that the ballistics guy from the FBI tells Mayor and the chief that the it's an old timey gun that's shot and it's probably an ex-cops or it looks like it was a cop's gun. That's why I also think it's Gordon Clapp because I bet that maybe he, I don't know, I think it's Gordon Clapp. I'm going to go Gordon Clapp, Dean, as the Mm, ultimate puppet master and all this. But anyway, Susan, anything else you want to tell us about anything that's occurred to you or or how this experience has been working on? I guess you said it was like a year ago that you worked on it. But now that it's all popping up all over a place, working on Mayor of Easton. No, it's just that, you know, I have tremendous admiration for Brad Inglesby, the creator and, and writer, who is the nicest man in the world. And it was a wonderful group of people. And Kate is utterly dedicated to everything she does. She doesn't mm-hmm. play. As they say, she doesn't mess around, but she really was was so devoted to this. It meant quite a bit to her. And I'm just really gratified that it's not only turned out really well, but that people are loving it. Absolutely. Mm. She's so yeah. in it. Yeah. In my work, yeah, I just- fly totally under the radar and it's better for people not to know about it but at the same time it's nice to have these discussions so just before we go susan i have one last request to ask of you and this relates to one of our listeners who goes by the name of at cass underscore 33 on twitter first of all i have to give a, a big shout out because she was absorbing all of our reps on mayor and tweeted to me saying, well, I just listened to 23, 24, then 26, where's 25? And it turned out there was some weird thing that happened on the server and our, our episode 25 had gone down and I had to reload it. So that's just a little technical thing. But thank you, Cass, for letting us know about that. But she then asked me if I could ask you the following question, which was, do you use any devices that show on screen how voices are modulated do you use any technology like that like visual aids i guess it's like a visual oscilloscope to sort of see what people are doing do you have anything high tech like that or is it just yeah. no? I'm, first of all i'm much too old for that learn <laughs> how to do that there, there was nothing like that available it would never occur to me in a million years to do that what i do is i have a pencil and i have paper and i have mirrors you know i call them speech mirrors just little cosmetic mm-hmm. mirrors 
so that people can look into their own mouths or they can look into my mouth and I draw things, little crude mm. diagrams, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that in terms of, you know, anything you did like that, you wouldn't really, if you saw it visually, it would probably be so different from your physical subjective experience of it. Mm. I don't know that it would even right. help. But quite frankly, because okay. I, I did my training a long time ago and I'm not trained in dialects, I'm completely self-taught in dialects, but in terms of speech and such, uh, all of that was a really long time ago. So it just wouldn't, I haven't needed to use it, but it's an interesting question. You know, maybe people in the future mm. will do that. Well, Susan, thank you so much for joining us. Please give Kate our biggest hugs. Her work is so appreciated. A lot of actors don't know if their work will ever really, I mean, how hard she worked. Clearly you've expressed to us if, if people will really get it and get all the moments. And hopefully we prove to you that we get it. We look with a freaking microscope at everything that's going on. And thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, HBO, for uh, facilitating this interview. And for now, this is Killer Casting signing off. 